This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now it's time to decentralize. But first, a quick welcome. You've again landed in the Decentralized Trials House or the Decentralized Trials Podcast. Uh, for those of you joining us here live in Clubhouse, welcome to. As usual, we cover a range of topics all around decentralized trials, whether uh, topics that are technical around data strategy, interoperability, connectivity, topics that are human factors around patients and representation, patient concerns and issues that can improve access. Uh, some of those factors will be our topic today. But keep in mind, these topics come from you. The folks in the community who are um, active and involved or just curious around decentralized trials. So if there's a topic of interest to you, feel free to let myself, Jane, Amir know, or you can always drop a line to us through secretariat at dtra.org and let us know if there's a topic on your mind that you'd love to see us explore here on Clubhouse. And again, just a reminder, while some are here with us live in the room, which gathers every Friday at 12 Eastern time, some will be enjoying this perhaps in their cars or later on, either as a replay on Clubhouse or through your favorite podcast platform. So whatever medium you're using today, uh, click a follow, a like, a subscribe, or whatever the jargon may be. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to today's conversation uh, because there are clearly challenges and strategies that people are implementing that are working for decentralizing research and making it more accessible, but there are some that are still vexing for so many. And I think there's a lot of myths out there about sites, uh, site staff receptivity and willingness to use decentralized approaches. Um, do sites want this? Are they reluctant or hesitant? Um, and so is this, this is a bit of an open mic uh, hour that we have this week. Uh, right, Jane? This will be our opportunity to share perhaps some initial observations, but also hear from our community here in the room about their experiences and perspectives on the topic. That's what I'm excited for. Like, really, if you're working with sites, if you're from a site, we really want to hear what's challenging and not the theory. Get into the weeds a little bit, please, because that helps us make it real. Did we lose you, Craig? Um, yep, I'm busy talking on mute, Amir, and I'm talking to you actually on mute. I was just saying, Amir, that, you know, one of the myths that comes to my mind so often is that sites don't want to do these things. They don't want to use decentralized approaches or strategies. But when you talk to leaders at sites or staff at sites about the idea of improving access for participants to be able to get involved, it seems to be universally supported um, which leaves me wondering, is it really that site staff are reluctant or are they just not pleased with the way that implementation has been deployed so far? And is the barrier really one around the tactics that are being used rather than the concepts? So I think um, like any other issue, there's lots of layers to it, right? So I would agree that just like folks in industry, 
I think people working at sites ultimately are in this because they want to help um, you know patients and people. So uh, I think the concept of increasing access, etc., is uh, you know very uh, attractive to anyone you know working in our industry. So I think in terms of you know thinking about perhaps from conversations with site leaders. Uh, you know, what the barriers might be. Um, I would say, first of all, I mean, sites are not a homogeneous uh, group, right? So it's a bit like when we talk about pharmacology and Asians, there's no such thing as Asians, they're very different groups within Asia. So sites are not just, you know, this homogeneous group of sites. There's very different business models, ownership, etc. So I think that's one thing. And like everything else, when you're introducing new things, there's a sort of spectrum of uptake, just like there is in pharma. So I think, you know, some site groups have understood that this is an opportunity for them to actually perhaps improve their own recruitment, uh, develop new skills, you know, deliver some of these services themselves. While others, you know, may be a bit more cautious and really worried about the business implications. So I think, you know, there's a spectrum of kind of thoughts about it. And also I think in some ways, you know, there hasn't been a great educational kind of campaign to kind of try and, uh, you know, people have just perceptions about something, which doesn't necessarily mean that's the correct perception, that's what the truth is. But, you know, they just have in their mind what this means, and that may not be accurate. So I think there's all of that swirling around uh, that, we, you know, one can think about. Does that make sense? Well, it does. You're absolutely right. Thinking about these uh, first segmenting this a bit, right, to different archetypes and where different stakeholders may be on a on a change curve. There are some sites that are academic research sites. There are some sites that are independent private practices that do research on the side. There are networks of of large uh, sites that are committed just to doing research. Uh, there's so many different models. It's it's kind of uh, hard to imagine generalizing. Um, by the way, just as a side note, I've been on this kick, Amir, uh, th this last month. I, I, I reviewed a paper for a very credible group um, for a journal, and they, they'd used a definition of sites as being the, the brick and mortar place where research gets done. And ever since then, I've been on this kick that you can't talk to sites because a site is a building, um, and we can't. So in my mind, I'm 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 just stopping referring to anything as a site other than a building, and I'll talk about the sites as the staff or the investigators. But um, I don't know. Maybe I'm overthinking this, Amir. Well, no. I know the other week it was quite funny that when you said this, Brad Hightower said that he literally is called Hightower. But I think to be serious about it, I think the other issue is not is it just about the building, but one of the challenges is sites are a living, breathing thing. So in terms of site intelligence and understanding them, you know, they've got the whole time they've got other entities trying to, you know, hire their people. They have, you know, turnover like anywhere else. So, you know, there may be other factors that change kind of performance. So I think it definitely is not a, a building. It is a living, breathing thing that changes, just like any other entity, you know, in pharma or CROs. So that's definitely a thing too. Well, I'm going to chime in just because it's very timely. Earlier today, I was working with one of the sub teams that's focused on how do you use the 1572 and DCTs which seems really, really weedy. But it's one of those really practical issues that is a challenge right now for site staff, for sponsors, and CROs. And while a site is not a physical location, the form asks for physical locations. And I think that's the tension we're trying to help drive a little clarity around. Well, to help us with this conversation, I've, uh, I've grabbed a few friends to bring up here and uh, kick things off. But unlike some of our usual uh, sessions together where maybe we're just focused with guests for the first half hour and then we'll open things up, 
this week is a little bit more of an open mic. So um, I'm going to introduce some friends like Sarah Cannon and Michelle Shogren who are here and invite folks from the community. You're here in the room. If you have a thought, idea, perspective, and experience around where sites and site staff may be struggling with decentralized trials and what could we do to make it work, um, feel free. You don't have to wait. Hit that hand-raising icon. Join in the conversation. I'd love to introduce uh, one friend who's here with us, Sarah Cannon. Sarah, feel free to come off mute. Introduce yourself for anyone in the crowd who hasn't had the pleasure. And share, if you will, if you have any initial perspectives on today's topic. Great. Thanks, Craig. Um, and thanks for having me. Um, for those that I haven't had the pleasure of meeting, I'm Sarah McKeon Cannon. Um, I'm the Vice President of Growth at Langland. And we're really focused on the clinical trial experience um, and really improving that for every stakeholder involved. And I think for me, when it comes to addressing adoption barriers, it's all about asking the questions. Um, I'm a keen believer in connecting with different members of the site teams to identify what are their concerns, really listening um, and truly understanding what are those barriers. I know we've talked about this before, but so many of them may be myths that are preconceptions to what DCT is and how DCT could benefit their patients. So really truly understanding what are those key concerns and then having that dialogue with all of our key stakeholders to truly understand how we can maybe address some of those. So that's always kind of where I like to start with these things is really listening. Well, let's definitely do some listening today. And I'm, I'm excited that, you know, we've got this group here and we have um, looking around the room, a number of folks that are actively involved in leading engagement with sites from CROs or from pharma, as well as a number of, uh, of leaders from the site community. So um, we'll be certainly actively listening here and looking forward to reacting and building on some of the stories and messages and experiences people are sharing. Um, Michelle, it's wonderful to have you here. Come on off mute, introduce yourself if anyone hasn't yet had the pleasure and share a bit about what you're working on nowadays. I'm excited to be here today and I really love this um, topic. My schedule doesn't always allow me to be here, but this was a great one. So my name is Michelle Shogren and I run a company called Innovate in What You Do, which is focused at really trying to help people bring innovations like flexible clinical trials into the day-to-day -day work stream. And using innovation methodology and user voice to do that because over my 25-year career in R&D, I've been on the site side, I've been in the CRO world, in the pharma world, and I see that they all want the same thing. You want the best for your patients and you want to be able to deliver things that can help people that aren't being helped currently. And if we can all kind of come together at the same table, we can do that. So we've been doing a lot of different user voice workshops with different clients lately, whether they're pharma companies or solution provider companies. And one of the things that I'm hearing from the sites are they just want to figure out how to make it work in their world. And that's the hard part. It's not, it's like you said, Craig, they're not saying, you know, it doesn't make sense or we don't want it. They can see the value that it could potentially bring to patients, but trying to figure out how to make it work in their world, that's the hard part. And we have to talk to each other to make that kind of come to fruition. So Michelle, Sarah had mentioned as well this theme of, of start by listening, and I know you're doing a lot of that as well. Um, but, you know, thinking back to your past life at Bear and the work you're doing today, as Amir was mentioning, there are a lot of different archetypes of what is a site. And there are a lot of different geographies where we may be going to engage with different institutions to be research sites. When we're, when we're getting into listening mode, which hopefully folks are beginning with when they are starting any of these initiatives or investments, how do you include a diverse and representative sample of sites? Um, can, can a group of leaders from 10 or 12 sites really represent the voice of the site in these exercises? 
That's a great question and I get that all the time. So you have to really look at what is your user voice activity intended for. Um, if you're looking for a statistical significance, talking to 10 sites will never be statistically significant. And we are used to working in those terms when we talk about clinical trials, right? Everything that we do has an end value that has to be represented. But when it comes to user voice activities, having a sampling of people can be there to have aha moments. And you can have an aha moment with a group of five people, you can have an aha moment with a group of 20 people. Now, whether or not it's gonna represent everybody that's out there, probably not. But what you're looking for are like things that they already see as a value and why they think it's a value, but also really more around the lines of what concerns them or scares them and what can we do about that? Because if there's one person with this concern, there's probably others out there. And if we can start to craft support materials, communication strategies, um, an opportunity to demystify some things or like Sarah was talking about, sometimes it's just misunderstandings because the communication strategies we've used in the past aren't clear enough. Um, we can identify that and you can do those user voice strategies as early as conception of the concept of a new way of working and really kind of dive in and prepare people and kind of bring them on the road with you. But if you have an oh no moment and realize you didn't do it early enough, you can start now, start today, start talking. And it's even like having a CRA, go to a site and say, you know what, walk me through what your concerns are here. What does your day-to-day -day life look like that makes it hard for you to consider doing this? And actually walk in their shoes and then have that CRA report back to the study team and say, you know what, I had an amazing user voice opportunity today and I talked to my coordinator and now I get it, now I understand and explain to them. But the voice and then doing something with the voice is critical. Michelle, I was on a call the other day, uh, earlier this week, with a, uh, a representative from a large pharma sponsor, and he was doing what you're describing. He left the office. He was going out and visiting sites. He said it was getting very uncomfortable with some of those visits, but I guess those uncomfortable conversations sometimes are the most important ones, huh? Well, the interesting thing is those uncomfortable things that are being said are being said whether you're listening or not. And I would much rather be part of the conversation so I could be part of the solution than having it happen behind closed doors. Let that be a soundbite. I think you're allowed to grab soundbites on, on Clubhouse to, to share on social. I'll, I'll have to figure that out because that's a, <laughs> that's a great one to drop later on. Sarah, how do you, um, you know, when you're, Sarah, when you're thinking about um, that, that listening mode, whether it's patients, uh, research site voices or others, how, how do you balance equity and voice and make sure that some schmuck like me isn't doing all the talking, but that you can really get, you know, a fair and, and balanced perspective? I think we need to really look at who we're talking to. Like you say, we have, whether it's from the patient perspective or the site team perspective, we have our professional speakers, those that are continually sharing their voice and those voices are so, so important. But we also need to make sure that we're talking to those quiet voices, those that may not be as comfortable or open with sharing their perspective, but the perspective is so valid. I was recently talking to SI around um, implementing some DCT technologies um, at their organization. And the PI and some of the um, other key stakeholders were really vocal and looking forward to implementing DCT. But it was actually the receptionist of the site that was really hesitant because they knew they were going to be the person when an individual had potentially questions about the technology or wasn't sure, they were going to be the first line of defense of answering those calls. And they thought they were going to have an increase in burden. So and I think it really is important to look at all of the touch points. And who are those people that are going to be interacting with some of our um, new processes, and really identify how we can ease those concerns, and not just the concerns from the loudest voice in the room. Great share. It's a great share. Hey, I'm noticing in the chat chain that I think it's uh, Diana had asked, well, is anyone willing to share an example of 
what those uncomfortable conversations can look like. Um, I feel like uh, we'd have to add a voice changer mode to uh, protect the innocent, but I'm going to share one um, uh, that I, a colleague was sharing with me recently um, that, you know, in a visit to a research site, a coordinator came in with a box and just started to lay out on the table, here's all the stuff that you guys sent me that you want me to sort of figure out and help the patient to connect with, like all of these different things and all their little boxes and all their different interfaces. Um, it, it seems like some of that could have been addressed with maybe some workshopping, some simulation of visits, some going out to sites with, with that box beforehand. Um, and, uh, uh, perhaps with some some more user experience minds around the table. Jane, does that kind of resonate with you as you're thinking about some of the stories you're hearing out there? It does. Um, and as in, you know, in my project baseline experience, which is not the same exactly as what we're talking about, I have to say they did a great job on end user materials for participants to know how to connect all their devices and how exactly to get help if things went wrong. And I used that service a lot, but it worked. I don't know that we're quite as um, sophisticated in that in every trial that gets run, so that's an opportunity. And Diana, thanks for your question. I don't have the story, but I have the data that I think would be fascinating to get the stories about. I'm working with a colleague who's from a big sponsor. And her data point is when they did feasibility, about 300 sites said they wanted to be in the trial. And when the sites learned there were DCT components, about 50% of them said no thanks after. And that's a real concern because the, the trial needs to get done and we really need to help sites feel comfortable that it can get done without without being really hard. Thanks, Jane. So I think just to answer kind of Diana's question, what I was saying, generally speaking, if one can imagine, this has this isn't really uh, unique to DCT. Um, so if you think back historically, one of the challenges we've always had is in some programs, the people writing the protocol, running the program, have never seen a patient, have never worked at a site, um, really, I mean, I've historically over time seen people, they really had no clue what really happens on a day-to-day -day basis or have someone show them that their protocol, what it actually means in terms of time for the site and the patient in terms of like all the 57 outcome measures they crammed in there. So I think historically some of those uncomfortable conversations was really, do you even understand what the implications are of what you put into this protocol? And I think you know, lots of big organizations, protocol by committee, all those things. So I think those are some of the conversations that's really nothing to do with just DCT, it's just, just protocols in general, technology in general. So those are the things that are uncomfortable because sometimes, frankly, if those pharma people actually get out the ivory tower, they're kind of shocked sometimes if they're not experienced already themselves of kind of what really happens in the real world. You know, Amir, it reminds me also how with um, so many large tech companies and, 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 and tech companies of all sizes um, looking at and engaging in the clinical research enterprise, I think it's easy for a lot of folks in pharma to say, well, they don't know my business. They don't know the nuances and, and subtleties and challenges of clinical research. And that may very well be true. But what many of those tech companies know far better than we do in pharma is user experience and user design and putting that attention into the systems that we're standing up, um, looking at the, the box of gadgets that we may be shipping out to a site and putting together a far more thoughtful process around that. And to your context, uh, to your comment, putting that in the context of all the other complexity that we're, we're thrusting on the site to make sure that it's uh, either addressed or at least that there's empathy for the burden that we're putting out there. Hey, I also see our friend Joe Kim here on the stage. Joe, welcome. Feel free to 
come off mute, introduce yourself if anyone hasn't had the pleasure. And Joe, I know you've spent a lot of time working with staff at sites on a host of challenges, including looking at the decentralized topics. I'll be curious your perspective today. Yeah, I'm kind of just putting the pieces together here. So hopefully my comment hits the mark. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, everyone, I'm Joe Kim. I've been in the industry for about 23 years of doing research. I most recently came from Lilly and I'm over at Proofpilot right now. Um, so when it comes to gadgets, what we found to be actually quite effective is to just take the responsibility and accountability off the investigator staff uh, on the whole. So we're actually doing one with with our friend Brad, <laughs> Brad Hightower, and he has he doesn't have to do any of it, right? So we've you, you, we've centralized it uh, so, so these gadgets can go direct to patient. Um, it comes with it a lot of other things, right? How do you train them? You know, you can send out a brochure, but it's better if you send them, uh, you know, digital ways to understand how to connect things. But then you can. <clears throat> there are other problems that arise too, because if you're not um, benefits and problems. So if you're not uh, supplying individual sites with all these gadgets, A, you, you save on the, the inventory because you, know, you don't have to oversupply every site, but you run into a slightly different problem because you're deploying things centrally. So there's always this little bit of a wait time between when you send something to a patient and like when they set it up, right? We can't just rely on somebody to set something up the day they get it, right? Sometimes things we want sit in an Amazon box for a couple of days before we even open it. So it, it, you come up with a little tricky inventory, you know, problem that you have to make sure you don't run out, uh, or you also don't uh, over enroll um, uh, and send out too many devices. So it's it's a very interesting sort of inventory problem you have to deal with, but it opens up a lot more benefits than than challenges, I think. Uh, because then you can start to uh, monitor where centrally and based on if people are wearing, you can remind them automatically. You can do micropayments over the days and weeks of doing things. And you can actually remove a lot of the burden from the site uh, on the whole when it comes to, you know, a, a gadget for a patient, so to speak. Um, so, you know, I think instead of handing all these boxes of things to, to, to the site and making them figure it out, I'm... I, the sites I talk to, they don't want anything to do with your connected scale or wearable sensor. Uh, so if you can just take it off their hands, uh, I think it'll it'll delight them even. Interesting. That's great perspective, right, Jane, on uh, just how to make these technologies um, almost uh, passive as it relates to the staff at the site rather than requiring active burden on their part. I think it just requires different coordination focus, like Joe was saying. I, I admit I took so much for granted when everything just got shipped to the site. Now I have to actively plan for things. Well, I uh, we have one other guest up here on the stage before we take a uh, a midway break. My favorite photographer on LinkedIn, Ted Trafford. It's great to have you here. Please feel free to come off mute. Introduce yourself if anyone hasn't had the pleasure. Thanks, Craig. Uh, yeah, so thrilled that you're having this discussion today. Um, yeah, my name's Ted Trafford, and I work for a company called Probity Medical Research, which is a large site network spread across five countries. Um, this topic is fascinating for me because sites in general, my sites, love the concept of making things better for patients. But I think it's important to take a step back and talk about how sites get paid and how what the implications are relating to DCTs, because a site only gets paid when they actually see a study participant. And so any additional time for staff is, is typically a loss of revenue. So if your tech is going to enable us to see more patients and not waste staff time, then great. Otherwise, it's perceived as a burden. And, and, you know, historically, when a new piece of tech has been introduced, the first time the site gets to see it is, is when it's mandated in a clinical trial. Um, and then the, the, the experience has often been that it doesn't work properly, creates more work for the site staff, and as a result, the site just can't see as many patients. So I think we need to add the, the financial component in here and and have a discussion about that 
So let's talk about that, Ted, because, you know, you look at the recommendations for decentralized trials out of Europe that came out back in uh, the end of Q4 last year. It makes very clear that investigators need to have the tools and the processes in place to provide proper oversight, regardless of who's providing the visiting nurse, home health visit, what sensor or device has data flow happening. Uh, are there? Are, are you not seeing, is there... Is it that there's no budget being placed out there today for sponsors to perform oversight outside of a visit taking place right now? Uh, generally, no. Um, so increasingly, we've been negotiating into budget um, fees for when tech, when you have to troubleshoot tech, for example, when your coordinator has to be IT support for the patient or when they sit on, you know, on hold with uh, the tech support company, but that's typically nowhere near the compensation level that they would be paid at if they were actually seeing a patient. So even when there is forms of compensation, it's not at the same level as you would be paid if you were seeing a patient. Um, I, I really love that you brought up the guidelines because the whole concept of oversight is a very difficult and stressful one for principal investigators. Uh, if you're using a home health nursing agency in a study, there are concerns that they haven't vetted those people properly. And so how can they have proper oversight in a clinical trial? And what are the implications for them, both in the clinical trial setting, but also medical legally? Ted, stay here. Let's hold this topic. I'm going to turn to, uh, in a minute, back to friends like Jane, Michelle, Joe, that have been working in ClinOps for, for a while about perspectives on budgets for sites. Before we do that, we're about halfway into our hour together, so it's just a great opportunity for those of us that are uh, have just joined us in the last few minutes here on Clubhouse that are joining us live. Welcome. You've landed in the Decentralized Trials House here on Clubhouse. We gather here every Friday live, 12 to 1 Eastern. So keep on joining us for these conversations and more. The topics come from you, our community. So if you have a topic you'd love to hear, let myself, Jane Miles, Amir Kalali know, and we'll make sure we get that in the queue. If you're not here with us live and you're listening uh, through podcast, fabulous. Give a subscribe there and keep on listening there, or feel free to swap over one Friday and join us live, just like we have with our friends Sarah, Michelle, Joe, Ted, and so many others that are here in the room with us. Today's topic is talking about uh, addressing, understanding, and addressing some of the barriers that research sites face when considering decentralized approaches. And one topic that Ted had just set up ever so delicately is around budget. Are sites getting paid for work that's happening outside of a specific visit taking place? One theme that Ted called out is around tech support um, and just managing and dealing with some of the different technology being introduced in trials. But we also know that investigators have oversight responsibility, including when there's sensor-derived data or visiting nurses that are going out and supporting some visits. So I'm curious to turn over to some of our friends with long histories in ClinOps and Pharma. Uh, Joe, maybe you could kick this off. Um, are we missing the beat in terms of supporting sites with proper budgets to cover many of these procedures? I'll go one step further. We're not supporting them to cover the stuff that's happening in the clinic visit. So something that, because a lot of the budgets are based on like the schedule of events, right? So I always like to use the analogy of if you tell a parent, you know, take your child out for the day, you know, arguably that's one thing they have to do, but not really. That's like a thousand things in order to get that the kid out and back safely. So we do this to sites all the time where we just think the schedule of events covers all the activities. But as we all know, there's stuff buried in the footnotes. There's a lot of stuff you have to do before and after, and it may not be represented by an X in visit three, right? In that grid, but there's so much more around it. Um, so when you really break down all the tasks required, we often see a proof pilot that's an order of magnitude more. So in other words, if the schedule of events says 200 different tasks, if you count up all the little X's, and you really break it down into what, what it takes to pull that off, 
you're usually in the in the 1000 task range right for a patient and that's that's a lot of extra work that goes uh, uncompensated Jean? joe I, i'm gonna chime in and uh, i agree with what you're saying 100 percent and my sponsor hat is on right now when I say I know that those folks are trying to do what they can in that fair market value setting, at least in the U.S. And so at SCRS last fall, I know we had an active conversation like how might we be better equipped to show regulators that we're acting within fair market value limits and can compensate adequately. You didn't come up with a solution, so have you? Yes, so um, there's, the, there's the fair market value to do a specific thing like an informed consent. Uh, but then if you don't break down the actual work and tasks separately that have to, um, that's informed consent's a bad one, but let's say it's, a, it's getting the vaccine ready or you know centrifuging something. If you don't break down that task and make it conspicuous and measurable, and quantified, well, then you're, you have nothing to tie your fair market value to. Does that make sense? So something in the schedule of events, yes, you can tie a fair market value to that. Maybe it's $100, but there might be like three hidden steps before that that's not in the schedule of events. And if you don't break that out into, say, a digital object or a task that you can actually look at and point to and, and actually have evidence that it was it was done or checked off, you know, then you don't have another thing to t attach some monetary value to. So you really have to take the time and break down all the different tasks into discrete, discrete actual tasks. <laughs> you break down all the work into discrete tasks. Then you can start assigning uh, monetary value to those tasks. I think that's aligned to the comment I had in the chat. Like when you're doing these trials, you really have to get into the weeds of all the handoffs and processes that we often did take for granted. But I like your thinking there, Joe. So Jane, let me ask a question. Who decides what is fair market value? Oh, I can't answer that. Mm -mm. Right, so I think, but this could be a whole session, quite honestly, Craig, we can talk about this. Uh, um, I think there's lots of things we can talk about that. So I think lots of times we just assume certain things are the way they are. And when you dig in, they have absolutely no relationship to reality, and they're driven by people that you may not even realize. Michelle, you have a thought there? I have a huge thought there because the fact you have to remember my journey started on the site side of things as a research nurse, but I was also a site director. So I had to deal with budgets firsthand. And this is before we added all this tech to it. But even back then, just like Joe was saying, budgets weren't right. And the fair market value as a site, I had no idea. When I jumped the fence, when I started working in CRO, I didn't know about it, but boy, when I got to pharma and I realized there was a tool out there and people had to use this tool and it would give numbers and then pharma was told, okay, you need to go to the middle of the range and that's where you're allowed to be and not the upper end or the lower end and you know somewhere in the middle. Um, it became really um, much clearer for me as to why I had so much problems in the past when I was on the site side getting budgets negotiated or getting paid what I thought it was actually worth. And through the fair market value mechanism and tool, I think it was done with good intentions, definitely to give kind of a some scale of what should be expected. But I think it's out of date and it has maybe not the best span of different considerations and hasn't grown over time. But the other problem is it almost has like this bundle discount, what Joe is talking about, because it says, okay, this is the cost for this. But if you break it all down and you look at the individual pieces that make up that end result, it would have cost much more. It would have taken much more time. So I think we're in a really good spot now for innovation on how we look at fair market value, also how we work with budgets. And from the site side of things, I think there's an opportunity to suggest line items that might not already appear in your proposed budgets because of these new things that you're doing. And because they're new things, they may not have a fair market value tied to it, and there might be opportunity. From the sponsor side, though, it sucks because when you're a study manager, you only have so much budget and now you're being asked to add in new ways of working and new costs just for the 
whatever this new technology is or new way of working is. And now you're going to have to pay the sites more and you're just trying to juggle and not get yelled at. So it's, it's definitely a tricky place and there's some opportunity for improvement. Huge helpful perspective. Ted, I'd love to come back to you on this one. You know, we're, we're hearing, you know, there, there clearly, there's clearly non-visit related support that sites need to be, um, uh, where sites need to be compensated. Um, Joe raises a great point about, you know, there is fair market value for specific tasks that are being performed, but maybe we're not necessarily reflecting all the tasks uh, that are involved in a certain line item to even uh, provide adequate support. Is that getting at the root cause in your mind or are we missing a beat here? Yeah, I think what, what Joe brings up a really strong point and, and he's right and, and the others that have talked about it as well is that there are so many additional things that just don't, aren't put put down on paper in the protocol that have to be done in the clinical trial. And the whole concept of fair market value, I'll tell you pretty bluntly from a site perspective, sites see that as, a, as an excuse to pay sites less. Uh, we see an enormous range in the budgets that we get from different sponsors. And some sponsors pay uh, significantly more than others. So if we're all using the same tool and we're all supposed to have, you know, kind of the middle of the road budget, how are these budgets so wildly different? And every time we try and negotiate something, it is just the excuse comes back, well, it has to be fair market value. So then we have to break down the task, uh, come up with a time component, a reasonable rate for what the coordinator of the PI would be paid and provide, you know, considerable rationale in order to try and get something approved. So I think that there's potential if we started to rethink how we look at fair market value. We also have to take into consideration that some of these trials take place over a number of years. Site costs are going up especially with the way inflation has gone up over the last couple of years, the site costs are continually increasing, but we don't have the budgets continually increasing. They stay stagnant uh, over usually the life of the clinical trial. So we're, we're focusing a lot here on budget. And uh, I know my friend Jane is taking a lot of uh, mental notes here because we are, um, in the background, looking within DTRA at what are those site barriers and challenges and priorities that we can help through collaboration work to better understand and start to address. And so certainly these topics around budget are making a lot of sense. I'd love to throw another um, another one at this group and see if there's reaction, if this feels like it's the right direction or if it's a Trojan horse of some kind. The there are a lot of sites that have some existing technical capability or are looking to make investments of their own in certain enabling technologies, including technologies that we think about for decentralizing research, e-consent, use of video as an example. Um, are we deploying wrong by focusing on provisioning study-specific tools and pushing it out to sites because we, as operators at Pharma or the CRO, believe that creates less variability. Um, and instead, should we be focusing on strategies that let sites that have technology use more of their own? Um, I'm curious if, if anyone in the group that are here on the stage or uh, out there in the room have a perspective or thought on this topic. Yeah, I'll jump in just real quick. I think to the extent that, you know, these are well produced and uh, rigorously, not, maybe not validated, but well tested and properly built technologies. Absolutely. I think the hard part is how do you then orchestrate one site to be using this thing and another site to be using that thing. Uh, but, you know, it, it can be done. Um, so, it, you know, it would be great to provision and I'll, I'll, I'll even throw in a home nurse. Like, so if certain sites have their home nurse, 
there's a way to actually have them tap into their home nurse service. If some site doesn't, you can then provision uh, the specific uh, centralized nurse to, to do that. Orchestrating all that is, is, is hard if you don't do it digitally. Um, but the same goes with certain technologies. So if there's a, a sequence of events that has to go with technology A and then technology B, it can either be the centralized one or the site specific one. Uh, if, if it doesn't matter to the um, to the study overall, but so, assuming that these technologies are are, are good and well, um, it's the it's the it's the sequencing and orchestration of that that's that's the tricky part. But you know we can do that today. Ted, can I turn back to you as uh, as an active site guy up here on the panel today? Are there technologies or capabilities to decentralize research that you have or would like to invest in as a as a site to um to support research but but you struggle to in the context of multi-center research yeah absolutely so you know as as our group our network we're investing in things in order to improve the the patient visit, the the flow. We have we're constantly examining uh, decentralized technologies and tools, and how we would employ them ourselves. Partly because we'd rather be in the driver's seat and be using and deciding on which ones to use that would work best for us, rather than having one implemented in a trial and it not being optimal for our site. So just take e-consent for, as an example, we've been looking at uh, e-consent, but if we were to come to a sponsor and say, this is our e-consent and we wanna use it for the study, are they gonna accept that? Are they gonna allow us to do that? We, we might be okay with some of the smaller sponsors, but for the big sponsors of the world, is that even gonna be possible. I don't know if the group has any thoughts on that, but i um, definitely interested in hearing that because this is something that we're actively looking at. Seeing if there are any takers from the group, but Ted, I, I mean, I do believe that there are some sponsors that um, have embraced letting sites use their own video platforms, certainly coming out of the pandemic, having an understanding of what is a minimum qualification for a video platform to be used in terms of privacy or otherwise. And maybe those are particularly easy because there's no data flowing through them. So it's not really an interoperability issue. I think for other sponsors, uh, a place where they've, um, uh, uh, been more supportive when sites do push back has been around uh, electronic consent, uh, largely because the consent isn't my business as a sponsor. That's a relationship between the investigator and the participant. I'm not even a party to it. But as a sponsor, there is some operational data that I need. Um, uh, for for oversight, I, I do want to see signatures, dates, and versions but I don't need to get mired in the, in the, in the details around that. If, if the site has a way to obtain consent uh, and manage the consent process electronically that works for them, they should be free to use it. And if we as sponsors are able to focus on interoperability and minimum quality standards, maybe we can start to bridge that gap better. And to Joe's point, just provision these technologies for sites that need them and let sites use the ones that they already have whenever they're available. Do, do you think that um, a sponsor would be willing to pay uh, the site that uses eConsent, for example, and pay them at a much higher rate because they're using eConsent than the typical rate for obtaining consent. Do you think that there's receptiveness from from sponsors for that if they're not employing, you know, e-consent for the the study as a whole? It's a great question um, because certainly uh, sites would want to be able to recover their investment, and so if they're implementing an e-consent solution within their organization, how can they best recover that? 
would a sponsor be willing to pay more for that? Now, one argument you could make is, well, sponsors do pay for e-consent. If they're working with a third party to implement e-consent, they're paying them for their platform. So why couldn't they just pay the site something nominal to make use of their own? Um, it does get a lot trickier, though, if you have a lot of different sites using a lot of different tools and then still have to, as a sponsor, pay for some sort of platform to be able to aggregate the operational data um, out of those around, like we were saying, signatures, dates, and versions. I think, Ted, one thing that will help that argument is as we were able to build up more and more bodies of data that show that when sites use electronic consent, there's less rework. When sites use electronic consent, there's less rework associated with um, incorrect uh, uh, with protocol violations or other uh, or other issues that arrive downstream and so that it, it can be viewed as an investment in upfront getting it done right quality by design and avoidance of other costs downstream Joe what are your thoughts there yes uh, so Ted I think and this is just my humble opinion here I think you probably can't quote unquote, charge more for the consent activity. But maybe then there's a secondary line item associated with that, which is like the technology fee. I, I, I just can't imagine somebody at the far, like I've seen some of these people creating the budgets and uh, they're not gonna pay twice, double for consent just because it's electronic, even though there's tons of value for sure. Um, but it might have to be split up that way. Um, and this probably is a safer thing to do, so it doesn't look like, that you don't get the appearance of someone just being, you know, given an exorbitant fee when really underneath it is also the technology. So that's just my, that's my gut reaction of how that would probably play out. Ted, I imagine you have a lot of um, enterprise tech costs, your CTMS, some other systems that you're using for the trial. Um, do you consider them all overhead when you're budgeting or are there opportunities to line item certain technology fees? Um, there are definitely opportunities to line item some of them. So for example, we have our own platform for remote monitoring visits that we had to establish uh, during the pandemic in order for monitoring to occur. And so we went out instead of using, you know, what the, what the sponsors were offering, we went out and uh, set up our own. So we do bill from that, uh, bill, bill that uh, separately in, in the budgets and that, um, uh, you know, we haven't run into any issues with uh, sponsors not wanting to pay, pay for that. So yeah, there are, there are absolutely things that we're starting to to build in and that came out of necessity that uh, we're trying to, you know, uh, be very thoughtful about and be very conscious of, of the cost to us, to the sponsors and, and how it fits in the, in the scheme of the study. Jane, I've been neglecting the chat, but it looks like there's a lot of good stuff going on over there. Is there are there any takeaways or summaries of of what's going on in the clubhouse chat right now? Um, more of a call to action. I think when you have a burning question or an answer to one of ours, please come up on stage. And it seems like we do have some experts on FMV, far more expert than me, involved in this chat. I think also. Um, Ted, I'm really curious, when you talk about some of those tools, the question I have, the ones that you're now building into your budget, are they creating data or flowing data to the data set, the clinical data set, or are they workflow tools? And sometimes I think those things get viewed differently at the sponsor side in terms of what is easy to use um, in terms of a more what is it, heterogeneous approach? Yeah, I think from our experience with the sponsor's perspective is if, if you can make the case that it is a legitimate expense and tie it to uh, either a protocol procedure or a protocol requirement or even just simply 
something that would not be considered standard in a clinical trial, then it's a lot easier to make a case for it. I think that many sponsors uh, are changing the way they think about uh, budgets in clinical trials and partly due to DCTs, because I think we're, we're looking at just changing our approach to clinical trials in general. Um, we've seen so much change over the last few years, and I think it's going to continue to accelerate. And I think there is definitely more openness from sponsors and on how they, they view the, the process, uh, in some cases, the budgets. And, but I think you really have to do your homework and you need to be really prepared to justify anything that you're asking for. That makes sense. It aligns to what I heard at SCRS and from the sponsors. It was theoretical, of course, but when you can really prepare the business case, and I'm not talking slides, that this is going to help and this is why the cost is actually a valid one. Sponsors want to hear about it because they actually want that justification to support their ask back to their management. You know, Jane, one other thought on my mind that I think you're going to be able to help us with this weekend since I believe you're at the airport heading off to the ACRP annual meeting. You know, we're talking a lot about sites and as a, as a very meta term, as Amir was pointing out earlier, but we have study coordinators, we have investigators, we have leadership in these, uh, in these, in these buildings, right, that, that all have different needs. There are needs around the budget. There's needs around making it work for oversight. There's needs for the boots on the ground, the coordinators that are already pretty busy, already stretched pretty thin, already uh, under-resourced in terms of just manpower and the workforce. So Jane, I think it's gonna be interesting as, as you're engaging with so many at ACRP, um, I'm gonna look forward next week to hearing you know what are we what are we missing there from all that that segmentation of stakeholders, in particular uh, from the voice of the study coordinator. I'm very eager to listen, so come and find me if you're going to Dallas. Amir, there's great conversation in the chat as Jane mentioned that leans in on fair market value and. One thing that seems to be coming up is the great tools that are being used for fair market value are ones that simply seem to be aggregating and averaging what you used yesterday for budgets, for studies, and calling that fair market value. So does that seem to amplify or validate the root cause problem you were hinting at? Well, I mean, I'm very aware of that's the way it's done, but what I would say is I'll leave you with a couple of thoughts, which is, I really do feel for project management folks in pharma trying to deliver two timelines where the budgets are driven by a CFO who really doesn't care, you know, how good the study is, frankly, or anything like that. So the question really for pharma would be, are they going to be competitive in actually persuading sites and uh, patients to come into their trials if they're not doing things that actually incentivizes uh, you know, those stakeholders. And frankly, the last question I have is, what is the incentive for the CFO to change anything if it just means increasing costs for the farmer, right? I think we're gonna have to get a CFO on, uh, on, our, on our show here one of these weeks, Amir. Maybe that's a homework Well, just like us. sites, there's different CFOs, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that one last question, actually, before we run out of time, Craig, uh, I've been meaning to ask you, which, which AI did you use for your avatar, it looks like? <laughs> I can't even remember anymore. There are so many of them. There uh, are <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> This has been a great conversation. I don't know if there are any uh, final words from the folks in the, in the room here. Feel free to come off mute if there's anything you wanna drop in in this last minute. Otherwise, I just wanna thank uh, Michelle, Joe, 
Ted and Sarah for jumping on stage and joining and helping to lead this conversation today. And of course, my co-conspirators, Jane and Amir, for, uh, for, for uh, helping to keep this community going. Remember, if you have a topic you'd love to see us cover in the weeks ahead, drop us a line, follow, subscribe, all those great things that people on podcasts and clubhouse tell you to do well do it and another great note that amir always calls out and i often forget tap the profiles of people that are here in the room if you're on clubhouse with us these people share your interest in today's topic could be a great partner to help you solve a challenge in this area not just the fabulous folks that came off mute but others that are here in the room uh, with that i will thank everybody for your time here today We'll look forward to seeing y'all next week. Stay well, everyone.